If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to Kavitha Davidson, a journalist with ESPNW and ESPN the Magazine, who studied music with freaking Juilliard, a fact which makes me a little less likely to brag about making District All-Star Jazz Band back in my high school in Ohio. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. On the phone this week, we're scattered, we're busy, we're traveling. It's our ace sports PR rep, Adam Willard. Adam, how are you? Well, uh, like the rapper Nas, all I need is one mic, and I don't know where it is. Uh, <laughs> uh, the only rappers that I know are Fresh Prince and uh, and, po- and Positive K and Cedric Sabalos. <laughs> hey, can I give a quick update to the listeners? Yeah. I have reached out. I have reached out to Cedric Sabalos, uh, and he has de- thus far declined to respond to my many interview requests about his DJ career. <laughs> so, <Really>? said, <laughs> yeah, that I mean, is a, that is a hammer thrown down that I never thought seen not thrown back. <laughs> it's a little bit like just. It's a little bit like uh, putting you know cookies on the counter and my kids not eating them. You know, like really. Really? You getting a lot of media requests for this, Cedric? But, you know, hey, I'm sure he's busy doing it. Whatever it is, Cedric Sabalos does with his free time. Maybe making, uh, you know, making adjustments to blindfolds, which may have to be used for future dunks, Adam. That's right. He was the first to do the blindfolded dunk. And was he the last in the NBA? Who knows anymore? I. You know what? I think... I don't know why I think this, Adam, but I think J.R. Ryder uh, did a blindfolded dunk really? like, through the legs. I have no idea, and I'm not going to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I mean, I actually, I frankly <laughs> feel we've already given Cedric Sabalas more attention than he deserves, <laughs> considering he won't return our phone call. So let's move on. Real quick, some some intern in like Las Vegas or L.A. is doing a monitoring report. <laughs> And mentioning the Just Not Sports podcast uh, to Cedric. Uh, not with us. Not with us today. Joe Reed still moving across the country. Uh, Joe, next time I would rent a truck versus uh, that, that horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> Retro chic <laughs> that is he's he, doing. All- is he doing the cross-country trip? Like the Route 66? Like making a vacation out of it type deal? They are going across the country. It would it would strike me as a very Joe slash millennial thing to do to like take Route sixty six as opposed to the much faster mega highways that exist now versus in the nineteen fifties. Uh, or the thing known as the airplane, and for uh, what would what you would spend in gas, you can have your car deliver cross country. Yeah, right. I mean, you like you probably text your stuff there somehow. Um, Joe, we also, could have started a fundraiser a month ago if you had been resourceful. I could see Joe uh, and his fiance stopping at like uh, multiple 
like Jack Kerouac stopovers, you know, the famous places where Kerouac got into fights after harassing women and then later wrote about it where he was defending the women and some biker was doing the harassing. <laughs> Obscure reference. No, I don't yeah. know about that, but uh, yes, that does sound like a Joe Reed activity. Anyway, Joe, have fun. Uh, also not with us, Gareth Hughes. Uh, Gareth covering the, the Final Four last week. I have no idea if he's at the Masters. We, we didn't hear back from Garrett, so I'm guessing he's covering the Masters. And, uh, Adam, have you watched any golf today? We're taping this. We're, we're going to sound a little different. Adam's on the phone. I'm in my home office, which is a, a fabulous uh, popcorn, uh, popcorn-walled popcorn uh, room uh, behind my garage. Uh, real high end on Just Not Sports. Uh, Adam, have you watched any golf today? It's a Sunday of the Masters. Uh, I have. I went to the 2009 Masters, which is probably the single most entertaining sports event I've ever been to. So I do have an affinity for it. And I've been watching Sergio Garcia, uh, and i just waiting for him to self-destruct. Really, that's why I'm watching. Adam, sell me on, sell me on watching golf live, because I like golf. I played golf in high school competitively. I was good. I would never go to a golf course to watch other people play. It seems so boring. Yeah. What do the kids say? FOMO, fear of missing out. That is what watching live golf is like. You are, if maybe you're lucky enough to catch a couple great shots, but mostly you walk the course uh, and you hear people cheering from other holes. That said, I think Augusta was a little bit uh, different just because of the history and i don't mean the racist and sexist history there but the <laughs> um the the history of the sport um the fact that beers are still five dollars was a big draw it's this sounds weird because it's in augusta georgia which isn't a, a beautiful town but the course itself is one of the most beautiful places i've ever been in this world and i went in 2009 when tiger and phil uh were chasing the lead on Sunday, Angel Cabrera ended up winning in a playoff. Um, and interestingly enough, we had press credentials through CBS that year. So a friend and I. Um, so we got to see Butler Cabin and spend a few minutes with Jim Nance. And it was quite the experience overall. It was kind of a great guys weekend. And uh, so I, I can't say that I've been to a golf tournament since then, Brad, but that particular experience was incredible. And I definitely would, would, Put it on your bucket list if you can ever get there. Okay, be honest. You got those press credentials because you pretended to be Scoop Jackson. <laughs> yeah, that's, you're correct. They they would have no idea. Sure, sir. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm writing for Slam Magazine. Uh-huh. Okay, come on in. <laughs> okay, well, uh, right now we're going to do what we do. Take the open of the show and make it wide open. A, a free-for-all for anyone to bring up anything related to the culture and personality of sports or maybe even beyond sports. Adam, I'm going to start. You ready for this? Yeah, I am ready. Tom Brady, I saw hanging out with David Blaine, street magician David Blaine. Did you see this video? No. Okay. First off, David Blaine, if you haven't already go back and google and uh, and and watch his initial street magic specials from like the early 2000s they are fantastic they are, they are really really interesting really innovative card tricks innovative at the time meaning you'd seen a lot of the same stuff and then he's doing just really funky stuff that's freaking people out in the years since and i want to break this down a little bit he's gone a different route with magic 
lots more like extreme body punishment. So he's in Tom and Giselle's kitchen and he's like, Tom, feed me this shard of glass. And so Tom Brady does it and David Blaine just like chews it and eats the glass in front of him. Yeah. Adam, let me ask you this. Is that magic? Um, it's innovation in the field of uh, misconception, or uh, what's the word I'm looking <laughs> what? for? What? Do you uh, do PR for David Blaine? Is that that looks like a prepackaged Q now you're reading off? Of. I well, I was trying to take the other side of the issue because I know how you feel about this, <laughs> so that's my answer. So yes, this is innovation and the art of misconception. So it certainly is magical. Especially, the weird thing is, it used to be a man on the street. Uh, now it seems that his encounters uh, have veered towards almost exclusively celebrity interactions. What do you make of that? Well, he always had celebrities as part of what he did. And I think it, if you can get the authentic reactions from celebrities, go get them. Because that's going to make your shows and your specials that much more viral. I'm going to go mean like, like hey, Cedric Sabalas in this show. Just trying to go yes. viral, said. That's just all. trying to go viral. Just trying to go viral. I will say this, Adam. Uh, hey, hey, Shannon, I'm going to take the skip uh, uh, part of the the debate here and just say uh, that's not magic. Like, I could sit down right now and eat glass. Now, I would I would crap blood for two weeks, but I could eat glass. I want to see David Blaine get back to doing awesome tricks. Uh, and 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 to your point, like misdirection, sleight of hand, illusion. What he's done recently is just sort of train his body to take bizarre punishment. And I just don't. It's it, okay if if he was just a guy who came out and did that, I'd say, okay, fine, that's what that guy does. But we know this guy is capable of a more art art worthy form of magic. I just say go do it. Well, I will you, say this. you've heard about what he has planned coming up on Hulu, right? Oh my God, no! What's he gonna do? Is he gonna like shoot his dick off? Well, after swallowing the glass, he shits out a small intestine. So it's not as magical as you think. <laughs> look, look for that next year on Hulu. I'll be subscribing to Hulu Plus right now. Uh, okay, so that's my. I, I will say. David Blaine also famously did card tricks in front of the, the late 90s Cowboys. And it was Deion Sanders who just walked out and was like, nope, nope, that's like black magic. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> we got to break down. We should break down David Blaine and, and, and athletes at some point. That's a, good, that's a good topic on the show. Absolutely. All right. What, Adam, wide open. What do you want to talk about? Uh, I, I witnessed a very just not sports moment last night. Uh, Brad, I don't know if you watched UFC 210. I was going to say, was it two podcasters outside begging for food? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> UFC 210 was the re rematch uh, between light heavyweights Daniel Cormier and Anthony Rumble Johnson. Anthony uh, Rumble Johnson, one of the most vicious punchers in all of UFC, vicious strikers, rather, in the sport of mixed martial arts. Uh, and at 33, he lost to Daniel Cormier, who um, Daniel Cormier is 19 and one in his career. He's only lost one fight, and that was to John Jones. So it's not like Anthony Rumble Johnson experienced uh, an embarrassing loss. He uh, 
he was choked out in the second round, and he announced after the fight, this was my last fight. I didn't even tell, insert UFC, Dana Pre- UFC president Dana White. I didn't tell anybody. My coaches knew. My family knew. My friends knew. I didn't want any distractions. I have to thank you all for being there for me. I gave my commitment to another job, something that I've been wanting to do for a while. It's not MMA-related or anything like that. It's just time for me to move on to something else. I'm tired of getting punched and rolling around on the ground with guys and stuff like that. Ain't nothing fun about that. So, Rumble Johnson at 33, which is uh, not young in any sport, but he is, he happens to be in the prime of his career, is leaving UFC for a, a job that has not yet been disclosed. There was instant internet rumors that he was going to try to play football because he's a huge Los Angeles Rams fan. Uh, but he responded by saying, no, I'm not going to play another sport or I am going to get hit in the head. It's completely unsports related. So uh, we've, I think we've seen this as a trend in sports the past few years, mostly in football. Um, but we're starting to see it other places. And Rumble Johnson, who had the chance, was making great money in the UFC uh, and had a chance to potentially be a light heavyweight champion of the world, someday soon gave that up for another career opportunity. And uh, I'd say even outside of sports, there's not too many people with the courage to do that. But So I commend Rumble Johnson for uh, retiring. He said he, he's going to try out this new job. If he doesn't like it, it's possible that he'll return to fighting. Uh, but I did think, wow, pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, and a related story, we have a new intern Starting next week, Rumble Johnson. <laughs> he's, he was going to be editing files and cleaning up Joe's profanity. Oh, Every no, week he's on the not. Show... Rumble Johnson has a new job. He's literally knocking down doors to get us guests. Dr. J, <laughs> we want to talk about the fish that saved Pittsburgh. Rumble Johnson will be at your door in 10 minutes. Be ready. Be ready, my friend. Uh, okay, my only other wide open, I was working out, I keep a lot of athlete music on on my phone. And on Twitter, I, uh-huh. Yeah, well, well, no, this is different. I, today oh. I was tweeting, I was tweeting Alexi Lalas, friend of Pod, about listening to Gemini, one of his songs at the gym, and he got back to me. This is different, so I was, I was listening to the music, and on Pop Shack... Uh, I just made the sign of the cross and pointed up uh, Sandy Sosa style when you say Shaq's name. The song, Where Where Are You At? Adam, have you heard Where Are You At? I have heard Where Are You At. Okay. So the chorus goes like this, everybody. Yeah, everyone take a listen. Yo, Shaq, where you at? I'm over here. Hey, yo, Shaq, where you at? Fife, I'm right here. Hey, yo, Shaq, where you at? Fife, I'm over here. Yo, Big Shaq, where you yo, at? Yo, Fife, I'm over here. Hey, yo, Shaq, where you at? Fife, I'm right here. Yo, Shaq, where you at? dog, I'm right here. Okay, Adam. How does someone not spot Shaq in a room to the point where you'd need to say, where are you? And he'd be like, I'm here. And remember, this was written pre-cell phone. It's not like he's in a big club and they're on the phone and he can't see him. Is there any situation you can think of? And I thought about this for quite a while. Is there any situation you can think of that would require you to not be able to see Shaquille O'Neal in a room? 
spelunking in a cave. <laughs> Nicely done, Adam. Okay, but that'd be a big cave. And Shaq <laughs> yeah. would you know, Shaq would, would have to be able to like I mean that'd be like early Shaq spelunking. Like current Shaq from the general commercial does not spelunk. By the way, have you seen those general commercials with him? Uh yeah. Shaq will endorse anything, but he's been a successful businessman, so keep at it, Shaq. They're amazing. Yeah. They're really amazing. His performance, I will I will say, and I, I truly believe this, his performance against a green screen with a CGI character is superior to uh, Hayden Christensen's in both of the Star Wars prequels he was in. Brad, what would happen if you ever met Shaq? Because I'm, 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 I'm curious and a bit concerned. I think... It's a good question. I've worked with a lot of NBA players over the years. I have not worked with Shaquille O'Neal. He always endorsed rival products to the brands that I worked on. Do you mean random shit? <laughs> well, he did, like, vitamin water, didn't he, for a while? I have no idea. Um, I, I would... If, if I walked up to him to make a good first impression, honestly, I think I would start to do... His second verse from uh, I Know I Got Skills. And just see if he jumped in. Interesting. Would you really? If I you saw you Shaq that. and you walked up to him and you started to just be like, nah, nah, let me continue, and just kept going, I bet he'd be like, okay, you know my music. Like, that's cool. Yeah, how many, how many people do you think walk up to him and talk to him about his music? Do you think that's a common thing? Uh, or cause do you think people are like, I'm going to find a unique way to approach Shaquille O'Neal. I'm not going to talk about, uh, I remember seeing you as a rookie with the Orlando Magic, or I remember that time you broke the backboard. I think people are looking for like, Kazam was a fantastic movie. Or I remember that song where you talked about how your biological father couldn't be bothered with you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I would bring up his biological father. I, mean, I would it, it just was say, a touching song. Yeah, yeah. I, Shaq, I, I think if you just rapped his music, he'd respect it. If you just, I bet a lot of people come up and say, "Oh, I bought your first CD or I had your CD as a kid." But not everyone's gonna just start dropping rhymes. Yeah. Okay. What I would say would be like, "I'm gonna play the Def Jeff part, and you play the Shaq part. Let's just do. I know I got skills right now." Got it. Got it. Nice. Or just be like, "I want to give a shout out to my boy Uzi." And just be like, and see if he knows it. Yeah, or show him your uh, your tattoo of our shout actually, out on your back. Actually, actually, you know what I would do? I'd be like, I'd walk up to him and I'd be like, "Hey, can you give your can you give your um, cousin Ron a message?" And then see if he says which one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way in. I like it. <laughs> All right, speaking of ways in, let's right now get to our interview. It's with Kavitha Davidson. She's a very talented reporter from ESPN. There's a lot of writing on ESPN The Mag, ESPNW. You might have seen her work on other sites like Huffington Post over the years. Kavitha is a super talented musician, someone who um, you know, studied with a, a, a program operated by Juilliard, uh, still performs and plays uh, you know, just as a, a stress reliever and as a fun hobby. So we go deep on 
her um, her skills, her preferences, uh, musical influences, how she performs and, pr- and practices in uh, in her apartment in New York, which I imagine would be difficult to like just bust out your trumpet and start playing. But I uh, really enjoyed talking to Kavita. She's very, very talented. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Stick around. And then after the interview, stay tuned. Adam and I giving you some distractions. Be right back. So I played trumpet growing up. Okay. So like any like I feel like that's saying that at the start of a conversation with someone who's far more accomplished in this world, like yourself, um, is the equivalent of someone telling Tom Brady, like, well, I played a little high school QB um, in my day, so I know what you're going through. But I do think that like anyone who is who's picked up an instrument and and taken the time to learn how to play has an inherent appreciation for A, how freaking hard that is, and B, yeah. just I think has an appreciation for music that lasts your entire life. Um, and I'm just curious, like, you're, you're now that you, you know, you've, you're, you're very accomplished in sports writing. Like, what role does music play um, in your day-to-day life at this stage? So I actually wrote this column um, when Meryl Streep gave her acceptance speech uh, for her Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes about this artificial divide between the sports world and the arts world. And it very much felt like a John Hughes movie. Um, like, you have the jocks <laughs> versus the nerds, right? Yeah. Um, and I feel like I've always been um, I've always been the nerd who loves jock things. Uh, and, and the nerd <laughs> part of me is is the music part, honestly. Um, you know, growing up, I was uh, I was very encouraged to, to do music um, in school, and mostly it was to avoid doing uh, drafting and architecture classes. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I I, I picked up um, I picked up piano very early. My parents wanted me to do that, and I think they kind of also uh, lived vicariously through me because neither of them were uh, had the opportunity to learn to learn music. And then fourth grade, picked up a cornet because I went to an Episcopalian school and we played in the British brass band. Um, wow. And then eventually, yeah, the cornet translated to trumpet. High school to avoid drafting, uh, it was either you take. Uh, you're, you're in the chorus, or you take um, you take band, and then you can avoid drafting altogether. And uh, obviously, I did that. Uh, and then, uh, because I'd already been playing the trumpet, uh, my band, my conductor, basically said, if any trumpets wanted to switch to French horn, uh, you'd be guaranteed an A throughout the entire course of your four-year career here. And nice. I was like, all right, well, <laughs> this is an eight a.m. class, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, right. I already played trumpet and outside orchestra and symphony, so I'm going to switch to the French horn, and uh, and that was so that's how I got my third instrument under my belt. Um, but I feel like uh, you know the way that music kind of interacts with my life is that it gives me this other dimension and another escape, and I feel like art tends to be, and I say this about sports too, you know, we try not to think of it as an escape, but obviously it can be, and uh, and, and that's just kind of the way that, that I approach it. Like, sometimes I'll just sit on my couch and I'll, I'll put on, like, a Rachmaninoff and just, like, yeah. lay down and close my eyes, and, you know, that's just lose <laughs> myself in that, and uh, Google Home has been really great for that also, so, <laughs> so, uh, so that's, you know, that's just kind of, that's how I've always kind of approached it, and, you know, I don't play... Uh, professionally, and I don't play in an orchestra right now, uh, but I noodle around uh, in the daytime hours so it's not to bother my neighbors. Um, and it's just a really good way to, to kind of clear my head and, you know, maybe take out some extra st- uh, stress 
uh, out on on the wind instruments, especially. <laughs> yeah. So what do you what do you currently play? So I found my trumpet. Um, I found my trumpet. You know, at my mom's house. I brought it home. I I got it out. I tried to play it. I put it right back in. And I was like, I can I'll never get <laughs> back on this horse, and I can't be bad at it. I'm just I'm just done. So like, wh- which of the instruments do you do you still play? And um and how I guess how frequently do you do you like sort of practice? I mean, are you practicing? Are you just like kind of playing sheet music that you like and songs you know? Yeah, pretty much. So whenever I sit down, I don't have a piano in my in my apartment, but a, a friend of mine who's a musician gave me um, an 88 key keyboard. So I have that, which is gotcha. really lovely to sit down on. Um, I don't, you know, New York City, I don't have space in my apartment for a yeah. piano. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just kind of sit down, and it's really amazing. Like when you're when you're when your hands touch the keys, the the muscle memory of these pieces that you played. Yeah. 15, 20 years ago just automatically comes back. And it's just like, it's this experience of nostalgia, but also a little bit of accomplishment because you're like, wow, I really still remember, you know, Mozart and C. Like, you know, um, so, you know, that those those tend to be um, the pieces that I play uh, on the piano, just the, the things that I remember back then. I had a teacher who was very stringent um, with, with the piano uh, who never let me go into jazz or popular music or anything like that. So I, I guess I, I consider my trumpet my rebellious instrument um, mm. <laughs> because while I'm symphonically trained and classically trained in, in trumpet, I was able to go toward jazz and popular things. And there's one riff in uh, in a cake song, um, a, the song Italian Leather Sofa, that you know it's like a two and a half minute solo. And like that was my crowning achievement of learning how to play on my trumpet. So sometimes I'll just try and noodle around on that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I as someone who played trumpet in jazz band and you know marching band and symphonic, I have a, an appreciation for how much fun it is to play jazz on um, on a trumpet. Were you a good improviser? I improv, improvisation was was never my strong suit. So I, I was someone who could who, like was first chair in our band and, and ultimately in jazz band. I did like some of the district honors bands, which I know I I keep sounding cooler as I keep talking about this. Um, you know, doing my like district district jazz band, um, but I could I could never do improvisation the way that like a couple of my friends, you know, like Mike Snavely on the alto sax was just like amazing, or Dan Agee playing guitar in our in our in our bands, like they just had a knack for it. Was improvisation something that came naturally to you, or uh, was it something that you kind of had to like really hammer home and, and teach yourself? So it's funny because I think you know I'm a good I'm a good improviser on the trumpet. I'm not a good improviser on the piano. But the reason I'm huh. a good improviser on the trumpet isn't a natural ability at all. And this is why this is how I knew I wasn't going to be a professional musician. Honestly, um, aside from the fact that I wouldn't be able to feed myself. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, I think the um, the theory and the classical training on the piano translated better to uh, to the trumpet. They always kind of say this, right? Like, if you're going to learn an instrument, learn piano first, and then learn your yes. instrument. Um, yep. And, like, honestly, the just the, the musical acumen and the, the theory, like the musical theory that I learned um, from the piano translates so well to being able to, uh, you know, know when to go from, uh, you know, a major scale to a minor scale and how to translate that to uh, to the trumpet. And then some of the fingerings kind of do come, come naturally, um, but uh, it doesn't come on the piano at all. And I remember sitting down 
um, to uh, to sight read, and I can't sight read for the life of me on the piano. Like I like I just don't have that ability. And uh, I, <laughs> I, I I sat down um, to, to audition for my Juilliard audition, and they were like, "You're a really talented player, but you can't sight read." And I was like, "Yeah, stupid <laughs> shortcoming that I have." <laughs> so do you. You studied at Juilliard, correct? I did. Um, I so I did. I, I ended up getting into the program. I did the joint program at Juilliard in Columbia um, for uh, both piano and trumpet, not from Torn. Um, and uh, I I did it for a year, and then I realized one like I, I wanted to I wanted to be a sports writer. I wanted to go into journalism. And uh, when I, I was named a sports editor my sophomore year um, of the Columbia Daily Spectator, and it was just not I I, I couldn't do both. Uh, and then I was also taking a spot away from somebody who actually was probably way more talented and wanted to do this professionally, and you know, it just kind of dropped it. Uh, so yeah, but it was it was an incredible year. I got to take all kinds of incredible like ethnography classes around music and like the history of jazz and things like that. And I'm really grateful for that because you know, coupled with you know, all the classes that I took about Harlem Renaissance literature and, you know, the social movements at the time, um, it gave me a, a more layered understanding of the music that I was playing, um, which is also kind of how I've, I've approached my sports writing, is that, you know, contextualizing the art and the sport within the time in which it was written or played is, is really important to me, and, uh, and that's kind of guided my career ever since then. So, first of all, you're the only person I've ever talked to who said, well, I, I gave up music so I could get a, a high-paying job, so I, I decided to become a sports writer. <laughs> Which talk about—I mean, it's worked out. You're, you're a national sports writer, but man, that Very is a risky road. Yeah. <laughs> um, second, though, Juilliard has such a loaded, in a good way, connotation. It—it's it, it, one of the few things that when you just say, "I studied music," um, you know, at Juilliard. It, it, there's a ring to it that that's almost like you know I I did um you know I got I did my doctorate at Oxford or I right. um you know Fraser I Fraser Crane went I, to Harvard yeah that, yeah <laughs> that's right I mean I, I so how did how do you look back and compartmentalize now um, having had the opportunity to uh, you know to 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 study music at the place everyone who studies music wants to do that at. I mean, I'm I'm incredibly lucky, honestly. Um, I had parents who encouraged me um, and supported my, you know, my musical pursuits, and I had uh, incredible music teachers and conductors um, with whom I'm still friends to this day. Uh, like we're Facebook, I'm Facebook friends with my with my high school conductor. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those things where like, you don't want to, you don't want to be sitting in a party and be like, oh, well, I went to Juilliard. Um, and I also like right. didn't actually, you know, I went for a year. So like, let's, let's mitigate this entire conversation with that. Um, but you know, it's, it, 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 you know, being surrounded by great people only makes you better. Um, so being, you know, being in the company of incredibly naturally gifted musicians, um, and there are musicians who work hard, and there are musicians who are just naturally talented, and there are musicians who do both. Um, but being surrounded by that just made me a better person. And I think that I have um, a greater appreciation for, even when I go to see, you know, 
some, you know, whatever indie indie band who's just trying to make it on their own. I have a greater appreciation for what they're actually doing up there because I recognize even with my training, I could never actually do that. Like I could never, you know, be on a stage and just riff, uh, you know, off of a baseline. Like, uh, you know, I, I have a very regimented uh, understanding of my own talent and uh, it comes from, uh, it comes from a lot of learning. Whereas, you know, seeing people who are just naturally, you know, you can, you can give them a key and you can give them a song and they can just play it off, off the cuff. And that's really incredible to me. So I think that it, it helps pepper my understanding of, uh, of the industry and of, you know, just going out and seeing live entertainment every day. Yeah. I mean, whenever you see music schools, you know, portrayed in pop culture, it's always through this lens of hyper competitiveness. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I clearly, um, you know, the, the JK Simmons movie that came out a couple of years ago was, um, you know, a, a great example of that, but, um, you know, go back through the annals. I, I just, uh, a whiplash was movie. Yeah. Um, go, go back through the annals and, and you, and you'll find just it, it. They just all make it seem like everybody's trying to be the next big star, and it's cutthroat. Was that the vibe you got in that program, or did you feel like no people were actually very supportive and they wanted to to kind of help each other out and learn from one another? So it's a little bit of both. Um, it's definitely hyper competitive and very cutthroat. Um, but I came from that kind of environment in high school. I went to a high school that was all about your SAT scores and all about you know who did this on this last test and. Somehow, you know, people knew my SAT scores, even if I didn't know them. Um, so, like, I, I'm kind of used to that kind of environment. But at the same time, you know, you find your little niche of of uh, of musicians and, and of friends, and and it, it just kind of works out. And I was lucky to have a group that um, I had been playing with for years before I got to Juilliard. So, um, you know, be, coming from a place where, you know, a lot of us ended up going to the same schools um, was was very beneficial to me. Um, you know, you see things like Mozart in the Jungle, right, right now, and uh, it, it's, very much, it's very much that world. Um, but I feel like that's not necessarily unique to music um and and it's funny because whenever you talk to someone who has that kind of stratified experience between the sports world and the arts world they don't understand that that's the main thing that everybody has in common is that it's hyper competitive it's all about who you know um and you know if if i can you know do something to bump this guy out of second chair and then eventually work my way up to first chair i'm going to do that um, and, and it's the same thing, you know, on, on a football field. So I, I always kind of try and make that comparison because it is very much uh, part of a uh, of fabric of how you get ahead in the arts world. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I was just, you know, kind of talking about pop cultural perceptions. One of the things that you see, I think a trope that you see all the time is like, white people who are super into jazz and movies and TV shows, like, like Carrie and uh, Homeland. Or, so La La and, and Aziz Land An- right now, right? Oh yeah, La La Land. Like Aziz Ansari just made fun of that in um in, on SNL, and you know he said like, well, La La Land's like a it's a movie about jazz with no no black people in it. Um, how how do you what do you feel like is the um, I guess as someone who who is who plays jazz, who who clearly has a, a fondness for the for the music, how do you feel about sort of mainstream pop cultures um interpretation or, or, or perception of the music and how it gets funneled out to the masses who may not 
who may not have ever really in, in, encountered jazz one-on-one in a spot yeah. to, to see it any other way than what they're spoon-fed through, you know, TV shows and movies. Right. Well, so we started the conversation out talking about an improvisation, and that's what jazz is in its heart, right? Jazz is, mm-hmm. you know, just playing what you feel. And that's why, you know, I, I kind of have a little bit of imposter syndrome when I, when I play jazz because, uh, for me, it's very regimented. Yeah, so going back towards, you know, the Afro-Cuban roots of jazz, you know, it's impossible to separate the racial aspects from the cultural aspects, from the musical aspects of, of the genre. And it's really interesting to kind of study when jazz went from being this, you know, um, kind of vilified, uh, you know, it, it was played in, in nightclubs with drinking and smoking and, you know, during Prohibition especially. Um, and when it went from being that to being like kind of a high cultural pursuit. And that's when we found black jazz musicians who were uh, palatable to white audiences. Uh, and and then we had alongside that, we had artists like, you know, Miles Davis and Dizzy Gillespie who were who were coming up Thelonious Monk, Jesus Christ, you know, um, yeah. who were coming up and, and, and really kind of bucking the trends of what was acceptable uh, within, uh, you know, the constraints of, you know, classically accepted music. And, you know, to see that, those parallels, you know, it's, it's the Chuck Berry versus Elvis Presley argument, basically, uh, you know, and, and, you know, it's, it's really fascinating to me to see that in, in current, uh, the current understanding of, of jazz, because jazz is, you know, right now, you know, you can go to Lincoln Center and, and, and you know, pay $200 to see Whitten Marcellus play uh, versus, you know, you could go to Minton's in Harlem uh 65 years ago and pay $15 and, 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 and see Thelonious Monk play over there. And, you know, that gets actually revived Mitten. So that's, that's a really lovely thing to see. But, uh, you know, I think that there, you can't have an understanding of jazz without having an understanding of that ethnography and of that racial history. Um, and it's really unfortunate when things like, and I haven't seen La La Land, so I can't speak to the yeah. movie itself, but it's really unfortunate when, um, when the genre is separated from those racial roots, because you know that's really where it comes from, and that's where the entire uh, that's where the entire conception of improvisation and we had bebop and, and all of that. That's where that you know that has its place in history. Well, and we're at a, a strange uh, cultural tipping point where I feel like the idea of cultural appropriation. Um, is being debated in uh, first of all with the with the, a vigor that um, a lot of mainstream outlets have have. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's, it's certainly been debated among people of color for a long time. So I don't want to sound like ignorant person being like, well, it's an, it's a hot topic now. I mean, because um, uh, you know clearly those of us who have not been paying attention have not um, you know have, have been missing out on the conversation. But I also think that like it's just become a, a very mainstream conversation to be having right now. And I, I do think there are a lot of people who who are struggling with trying to understand like where where is the the line between appreciating and embracing um you know art forms that come from diverse backgrounds and that tipping point where it it starts to take on a little bit more of a sinister tone and or um ignore the artists uh who are at the root of the of the music i mean from your perspective how do you make sense of of the current dialogue happening around cultural appropriation so i think it's 
first of all, it's really important that we're having this dialogue. Um, yeah. Because that's the only way that we're going to get better at this. And there isn't an easy answer to that. Like, I'm always telling people um, the way that, like, my parents are, are from India. They moved uh, to, New York, to New York in uh, 1981 from Chennai. And, uh, you know, they're, whatever they see... Indian representation, whether it's in music, like Beware of the Boys with Jay-Z, or uh, Beyonce did that song with Chris Martin that was very highly uh, contested of whether it was appropriation or appreciation. They always see it as appreciation because they're just happy to be represented. I think that it's very different for African-Americans who have always, you know, like have always had their culture for centuries now um, appropriated and monetized for and not benefited from it in that way. I think that when we look at art specifically, the way that we can do this properly is to A, continue to have these conversations and figure out just mm-hmm. what makes people comfortable and, and what different people consider appreciation versus appropriation, and B, continue to employ um, people from these backgrounds. So I think David Bowie did this very well, where, you know, when he came out with fame, he he hired Luther Vandross, and he hired people of color to consult and play on the record. And it came out as this very authentic, um, you know, representation of what he wanted to be, you know, a tribute to disco and soul, essentially. And it didn't come across as, uh, you know, whitewashed in any way. And he was actually the second... Uh, white player on on the second white musician to play on Soul Train. The first, and this is a, a little a little trivia that I tend to trip people up with, was uh, Elton John playing um, uh, Benny and the Jets. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think that's I mean that's really the key is that when you have um, when you when you want to pay tribute and you want to you know explore. Um, cultures outside of your own, making sure that you employ and consult people within that culture is really integral to that. Yeah, and speaking of exploring cultures, like where where in New York or even nationwide, I mean, where are the places you would go to experience live jazz that you would say, if, you, if, you're, if, if you're someone who wants to go get a taste of it, um, you should consider you know, checking out X, Y, or Z? Okay, so first and foremost, New Orleans. Like, yeah. Touche, touche. Like, no other answer. <laughs> well, not like Southwest um, Ohio, Ohio, where I grew up. It wasn't a hotbed of jazz. <laughs> that explains how I got to the district district uh, honor band, because it wasn't, right. a, wasn't a deep talent pool. Exactly, no, and neither was 114th and Riverside, where I actually first learned to play jazz. So. <laughs> um, yeah, no, New Orleans, St. Louis, Kansas City, San Francisco, um, and obviously, you know, deep pockets of Harlem, um, you know, they actually did revive Mittens, um, which is incredible, and I recommend everybody go there. Um, but, uh, you know, within New York, there, I mean, there's so many places, and I think you kind of have to, at this point, you have to leave Manhattan to get the true, um, to get the true taste of jazz if you're not going to Harlem. But, you know, there, there's so many, there's so many places where you can, you can point to how, Jazz has evolved in America over time in not the most mainstream places. And those are the best places to really experience jazz. What about classical music? Because I think a lot of younger people just say they feel intimidated by it. Like, I think they, even if they have an appreciation for it, it's kind of like, where do I start? It's just such a wide pool to like get into. Where do you direct people who, who may be interested in learning more about it to to go like do you have like some 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 kind of home run entrees into that world 
So honestly, I think the best way, like there's there's a middle ground between like strictly classical training and jazz. And I think the best kind of middle ground is to go into symphonic band, like, you know, kind of modern uh, modernism, like early, early 20th century music, you, you know, play the Gershwins and, uh, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. maybe some of and maybe you'll, you'll dabble in the mall. <laughs> you'll go back to that. Um, but, you know, just to really, like, have a good understanding of marching band music, like, start with Sousa, honestly. Like, yeah, I was just going to say, like, is she going to say Sousa here? Right, like, let's, let's get a good understanding for, you know, syncopation and, you know, different time frames and beats and things like that. And, and, then, and then you go into jazz. I don't think that anybody can just, like really pick up unless they're incredibly just immensely naturally talented just pick up an instrument and then just go straight for uh straight for jazz but you know also i think having an understanding of where it comes from and you know very classical uh afro-cuban beats and 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 those kinds of things you know nathaniel Dett is a classical composer from uh from the early 20th century and you know i would say that he probably is a great place to start um, you know, he, he kind of uh, embodied uh, bringing Afro-Cuban beats into uh, what we think of contemporary classical uh, compositions. So uh, that's, that's really where I would, I would recommend starting, just finding that middle ground and then going towards, honestly, like the much harder stuff that takes a lot of uh, wooden power. <laughs> like your parents you know putting you on the piano like encouraging your talent did you did you ever feel like when you're taking lessons when you're getting into it as a as a youth that it just becomes too much of a chore because I feel like so many kids have a natural instinct for it but when you start to um formalize the training there's like people just like drop like flies you know what I mean yeah, totally. So there is there is that threshold. And definitely, I mean, listen, like no kid wants to sit down at the piano for an hour every day and be told that they need to uh, that they need to practice, even if they like do enjoy it or they have a talent like, you know, it, it is definitely a chore there. There's a point that you get over that. But I think that what helps to get over that is both parental encouragement, you know, maybe a natural drive, but also music education in school like if you if you have this as a class and this is why this is so important to have um if you have this as a class in within your education then you don't know anything else but having to do this every day so it kind of helps you get over that and maybe it does seem like school but then it just becomes naturalized in, in a certain way and so that's why you know funding for the arts and funding for public music education is so important for that reason because there's so many kids who grow up without having that as you know, a natural instinct or a natural, you know, like without having that as, you know, part of their everyday regimen that I, I think that we really lose out on, on, uh, on not spreading that to those people. Well, it's a good thing that um, the new president seems pretty committed to increasing funding for the arts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> 
okay, real quick. Trumpet versus cornet. Cornet was smaller. I I can't I can't picture the difference in playing it. Um what what do you remember about how it was uniquely different? So getting into a little bit of the weeds of it, the mouthpiece for a cornet is slightly wider. Um, okay. And the bell, the, 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 the instrument tends to be a little bit more um, uh, truncated, but yeah. the sound is way more muffled. Um, it's, 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 more of a, it's more of a warm sound than, than the trumpet. Right. The trumpet is very bright. Um, and, it, and it works for, for certain types of music, especially like British compositions tend to be um, less, uh, they don't they don't feature trumpet or cornet parts uh, in the same way that American compositions do. Um, so that's I, I think that that's that's the main difference. There's a beauty in it, you know. I also play the flugelhorn. <laughs> oh, wow! <laughs> Which well, I mean, if you can play a trumpet or a cornet, you can play a flugelhorn. It's, it's the bridge like to to uh, flugelhorn is the kind of the bridge to. Um... To French horn too, right? Because I know a lot of French horn players that would play flugelhorn in jazz or in marching band. I mean, yes and no. It's it's a different key, um, so you know there's there's some different there's a different mentality in there. But it, it is a it's a it's more along the lines of the embouchure that you would need for a French horn mouthpiece. So, um, but just the sound is a lot warmer uh, and. It's uh, it's a lot more uh, muted than with a trumpet. With a trumpet, you know, every trumpet player is it's, it's a whole it's a whole trope. Every trumpet player hates the violinist, and if they're in a symphonic band, hates the flautist because <laughs> because we think that we should be the soloist at all times. Basically, <laughs> if you're a cornet player, then you're kind of used to being featured somewhat, but then like going back to the background. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, like, who of your colleagues might have a like a really sneaky appreciation for either classical or jazz? Is there anyone you just kind of talk to on on the regular about those genres? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I do have I have an editor uh, who uh, I know she's a viola player, so I think that she would probably have uh, some of that appreciation. Um, other than that, you know. Uh, like uh, my publisher when I was at Bloomberg actually was a huge jazz fan. Uh, we used to go to, uh, <laughs> excuse me, we used to go to, to shows together. Um, but it's funny; it doesn't actually come up that often uh, in in professional conversations. So we should we should probably make that a thing, huh? Yeah, I mean, I, I know Vern Lundquist is a huge classical music fan. If you ever run into Vern, different different okay. network, but uh, you know, if if you see him if you see him at the Met, uh, you know, definitely roll up on him and talk. Right. That, uh, was, that okay. was a nice little name you just dropped. <laughs> yeah, Ver, Vern Lundquist came on our show. He he talked class musical with us. He 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 couldn't believe it. He was like, I can't believe someone's talking to me about classical music. This is just like this is a hoot. And I'm like, great man, anytime. All right, That's so, awesome. <laughs> uh, last thing, piccolo trumpet. Were you ever able to play it? No. <laughs> yeah, it's Flat tough, out, no. man. It's real tough. We, we when I was in marching, so we had a really good marching band. Which, yeah. Um, I have a funny story about it in a second. We have a really good marching. We had a really good marching band growing up, and you know we would you know compete and do a lot of other stuff. And my freshman year, they put in a um, a piccolo tr- solo, a piccolo trumpet solo, because uh, we did Les Mis and they did a Castle on a Cloud, and so the guy. Uh, shout out Matt Watkins in our band, who was the only guy I could really play that thing, and he 
he was great on it. But I remember picking it up a few times and trying it. And it's just so it was just took so much control over the airflow that I was like, I have no chance. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, my my strength as a trumpet player has never really been my range. Like, I can hit a high speed, but it's, it's, it's a struggle. Um, it's always been the sound quality. So, piccolo trumpet was totally out of <laughs> out of uh, out of my uh, my talent range. <laughs> How much vibrato is too much vibrato? Oh God, um, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> it depends on the piece. But let's let's go on the minimal side of that. Um, it's funny because I I saw um, I saw uh, Whitecliff Gordon at Jazz at Lincoln Center actually um, a couple of years ago, and uh, I, I I found the album that I had from that performance, and he's a, he's a trombonist, but he also plays the slide trumpet. So I I posted on social media something about how my New Year's resolution was to learn the slide trumpet, and every trumpet coach I ever had was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's nothing worse than like a, a really ambitious high schooler trying to do, you know, vibrato because they think it makes it sound better and it just sounds like they're they're it just sounds like they're running through the yard. Yeah, I'm a little bit of a snob when it comes to that. So. <laughs> yeah, well, especially if your talent's like rich, full sound, like that that with great control, like that that right. sound must drive you crazy. It's like that's like listening to an American Idol person botch a song off off key and not being able to like deal with it. Oh, totally. And it's always that thing where, like, just because you can hit a note doesn't mean you should. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final question. What's your what's your go-to, go-to classical music album or song and, and jazz album? Like, right now, if I, like you already mentioned Rachmaninoff. We sit down and just kind of, like, zone out. What, what would you put down if you were just, you know, at your house and you really wanted to listen to, to those? Okay, so... Classical music, it's Mendelssohn's Songs Without Words. Um, okay. Uh, those are really gorgeous piano compositions, and they're uh, just the instrumentation there is so complicated but simple, and what you get from it is this synergy, essentially. And I hate that word in what's become in like, the corporate context, but it works uh, when you're talking about these compositions. For jazz, always going to be Thelonious Monk. Like, it's just always going to be Thelonious. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, and actually, Thelonious, and I went to the same high school. There you go. <laughs> oh, how about that? Yeah. Um, plus, I, I, I'm going to call it right now, you are probably the only ESPN employee in history to have studied at Juilliard, unless you know differently. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but you know what? We employ a lot of people, so I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> Well, John Gruden, you know, who knows? He's he, right. he's up from like three seventeen to seven with nothing to do now, so he might as well uh he might as well just be playing playing some songs. Well look, Kavita, look we can't thank you enough for coming on. We encourage everyone to follow you. You're a great follow on Twitter at Kavita Davidson. Um they should read you in ESPNW, ESPN the magazine. Um I had a chance to meet you uh, excuse me, to meet you at um at the ESPNW summit. It was it was such a, a great time getting to, to talk and know you. And we started this show to really highlight passions and and talents people have away from from sports and I, I, you are at the top of the list in terms of like uh, just you know having an incredible talent so best of luck playing music i hope you i hope you continue to play um and never lose that i'm jealous of of sitting down and being able to make the trumpet work uh really well so uh, you know congrats well thank you thank you so much
And we are back in the sports world. We often see athletes taking on new hobbies, new roles, uh, new new cool things to do, and they inevitably get a bunch of shit from fans who believe they should be robots and uh, mindless souls who just watch film all day. So rather than just dub them a distraction, we know that life is just work and the things that distract you from work. So in this part of the show, we're going to tell you what is distracting us this week. Adam, you want to go first? Yeah. Uh, I was not going to talk about this publicly, but I suppose I will. I don't, Brad, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I know your wife is a, a big runner. I have never been, uh, but I decided uh, that I'm going to run a half marathon. I've been training about, uh, Ooh, about, congrats. about a month or so for that. Um, it is happening. Uh, it will be the Rock and Soul Marathon at Summerfest in Milwaukee, June 10th, I believe, is the date. So a couple more months of training to go, but uh, I have not enjoyed the training. I've enjoyed the progress that I've made. Uh, but I am looking forward to running 13 miles and then walking everywhere from then on, never running again. Well, congrats. I, my wife has run three marathons and a couple halves, and it's a huge undertaking, so I, uh, I wish you nothing but the best. Um, and I know that she's a runner because I am number two among my Fitbit friends, meaning in the Fitbit friend rankings – uh, you can see how many steps your friends get. I am very proud of my accomplishments until I see your wife, who crushes me by 30, <laughs> 30 or 40,000 steps a week. You're in a competitive like movement thing against my wife? No, I have never, I have never decided to compete against her one-on-one. I just noticed that there were names that I knew when you go to search for friends, and I thought – That'll be fun, and it is humbling every week. Dude, my wife runs, like, she ran, like, five miles a day, three to five miles a day up until, like, two weeks before she gave birth. Yeah, I remember hearing that, and somehow when I went to friend her, I didn't think, oh, this is going to be humiliating, and it is. Sorry about that, man. You should have known better. That's like being like, hey, I uh, I got into a professional poker league with Michael Jordan. And he's and he's up all night playing. <laughs> now, if she's up for it, maybe just we will pick a week that we will compete. And I will do everything I humanly possible, possibly can to beat her. We will wager $100, which will go to a favorite charity of our choice. I would like you to approach her with this. And see if she's in. Okay, real quick. Adam, you yeah. know my wife, okay? You know her. You've met her. Yeah. If if you thought, if you honestly thought that you were going to find a way to beat her in most activity in a week, yep. gambling against her was not a good move. <laughs> the yeah. way to get to get my to beat my wife in something like that is to just sneak up on Kelly. And say, hey, it's Thursday, look who's ahead of you, with a friendly email, and hope she's got plans over the weekend that prevent her from doing it. It's not to publicly throw down a gauntlet, because, man, 
she's already even before she even knows what that we're talking about this i bet i guarantee she's already setting up fitness classes at like soul cycle <laughs> yeah i didn't say i was a smart person i just said this is going to make for some great content i'm gonna get home and be like why is the treadmill in the kitchen <laughs> and she's gonna say because this is what i live on now <laughs> all right well hammer hammer thrown uh, down i will uh I'm, and maybe I'll throw the mic in front of my wife later and see if uh, see if she's got any commentary about it. Okay, I have mine. a feeling I'll be getting a threatening text in about an hour or so. <laughs> yeah, you will. Okay, we're going to take a brief interlude with my conversation with Adam. Talk to my wife, Kelly Cantwell, about Adam's challenge that he's going to out- Workout slash move her in a week. Outfit bit me. Adam's gonna outfit bit my wife Kelly in one week, and the in his words, the loser is going to have to pony up a hundred dollars. Kelly, how motivated are you to beat Adam in this challenge? Well, this may be the first time I even listen to your podcast. <laughs> it would be the first time you listen to my podcast. That's true. That is Kelly. How? How wrong was Adam to challenge you publicly and then also put money on? I mean, I was annihilating him when I was nine months pregnant. So now I'm chasing after a three-year-old and a demon baby who gets up seven times a night and needs ridiculous amounts of pacing to get to sleep. And that's just overnight. So, you know... I think he's screwed. Kelly, any any parting shit-talking to Adam, uh, feel free to, to say it directly to him. Seriously, dude, you're going down. I don't even, I don't even know what you were thinking. <laughs> you can't see her, I'm afraid. I see real, real anger in those eyes. Okay, mine, I want to talk about bad Michael Jackson, but not the way that you think. I was in the car recently, and a DJ, there was a, some random Michael Jackson song on, you know, late Michael Jackson, and a DJ comes back and starts to go, that song's off of Michael Jackson's Dangerous, and I just want you guys to know that Dangerous is the album that changed my life, and if you haven't heard about it, then you should download it right now and listen to it. Really? So I want to talk about Michael Jackson's bad albums, not to be confused with Michael Jackson's good album, Bad. Uh-huh. First thing I did, first thing I did when I went home, Adam, first thing I did after that car ride, <laughs> downloaded Dangerous. Just paid for it, downloaded it. Cause I was like, let me just let me just refresh my memory on this and see if this guy has any this DJ I've never heard of and will never heard of again, hear from again, has anything that I should be listening to. Okay. That album's a piece of shit. But I mean, there by are Michael some, Jackson standards, yes. There are some good songs on his later albums that I want to just give people. Like these are like bad albums of good Michael Jackson songs. Okay, you ready? Yep. Who is it? Yeah. Right. Great song. Uh-huh. Who is it? Is it a friend of mine? No, I'm familiar. You didn't need to sing it, but okay. You did. Guys, guys. Michael Jackson did not fake his death and show up in our studio. That was me singing. 
<laughs> I know you can't tell. Okay. In the closet. Great song. Yeah. Well, something yeah. about your No, baby. I, we all know the words. Moving on. Remember okay. the time, obviously. I was I just going to say, remember the time with Magic Johnson. Should we do a, should we do a, a segment about remember the time with Magic? Because I, honestly, I, I've suggested it a few times and no one's taking me up on it. And he doesn't have a lot to do, but I feel like it's an iconic performance from Magic. I feel like we need to fold it into a larger discussion about athlete cameos and popular videos, popular music videos, that being one of them. Okay. I think that Magic Johnson, that was like the last big thing he did before he announced he had HIV. Am I wrong? Uh, was it before or after? I don't. I honestly don't remember the timing. What year was the album? The album came out like ninety one, right? Yeah, you are correct. November twenty sixth, nineteen ninety one. And so he would have announced he was no, no, no. Right after, because he would have announced he was no. He was he would have announced he was HIV positive in in like October of ninety one. But but obviously this was uh, taped before. This, the, it might the have video been, was but probably like, shot before then. But the video was not did not come out then. The video, like the first single on that, was dangerous. Right. So that would have been an airplay for like three months, and then I, I want to say, remember the time might have been. Oh no, black or white was the first single off that, and then and that had Macaulay Culkin and George Went. Oh gosh, <laughs> you're right. I forgot all about that. All right, so those are good. I want to give a Garrett's not here to support me on this, but um, Earth Song, <laughs> great. Yeah, you think the end when he's just like, and what about the elephants? What about us? <laughs> Earth Song is like Man in the Mirror, but way more ridiculous lyrics, but just as good musically. Man in the Mirror is a better song, but Earth Song is a is a is a it it okay. If 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 Man in the Mirror were the 91 to 93 bulls earth song is like just dennis rodman on the second wave bulls <laughs> it's like cool and good in its own way but utterly preposterous and you should you would never just like put it on without being like i need to explain why i'm listening to this right now you would have to be a full album listen like you're encouraging our audience to do but there's no reason to ever go put that that track on specifically okay real quick uh, real quick, Adam, I definitely have that song on my iTunes and has definitely have definitely just listened to Earth Song in a bag. No, you have. No... Yeah. Why? Hey, hey, real quick, you want to do something fun? Sure. I'm gonna boot up my iTunes. Let's do let's do a little segment we call Brad's Most Played. Okay. <laughs> okay. I've never looked this up, but you can you can organize songs by played. Yep, I I have that on Spotify as well. Okay, this is embarrassing. You want to do my top ten? Two, three. Four, five, six. Yeah, I'm not seven, sure mine eight, is much better, nine, but I'm gonna let you ten. go. Yep, go for it. Okay, number ten, two hundred and two plays. Rhythm Divine by Enrique Iglesias. <laughs> Stop. Are you really? <laughs> two thousand. Uh, number nine. Wait. Number wait. This, it gets way worse. Wait. This is gonna get way. Worse. I want to play. I want to add an element into this game um, <laughs> to try to bring some masculinity back into this. Uh, when we get done with your top ten, I'm going to need you to name which one would be your entrance song if you were a fighter. Okay. 
All right, number number nine. Nobody's fool. The theme from Caddyshack Two by Kenny Loggins. What? Okay. <laughs> number eight. This is worse than this is so much worse than I thought. Number eight. Shut up and dance by Walk the Moon. I'm not even sure I really listened to that song, let alone 258 <laughs> times. That must be like a, it's on after something else I listen to all the time, and I change it. Number seven, I definitely it. listen to all the time. Wait, we're admitting that you bought that song. If this is your yeah, iTunes. yeah, we definitely admit that I bought that song. Okay. Number seven, Heaven Is a Place on Earth by Belinda, <laughs> Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> 286 plays, and I've I've relished every single one of those plays. Whew. All right, number six, Don't Let Me Down by the Chainsmokers. 329 plays. <laughs> Continue. Okay, number five, First by the Cold War Kids. 335 plays. That's a decent song. Number four is Mountain of My Gates by Foles. Another decent rock song. Uh-huh. 408 right. plays. Okay, now it's getting weird. <laughs> now, oh, now it's getting weird. All right, keep going. Number three, Castle on the Hill by Ed Sheeran. Okay, oh. I've I downloaded this two weeks ago. It has four hundred and fifty seven plays on my iTunes. Wait, 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 wait. You downloaded the song <laughs> two weeks ago and you've listened to it four hundred and fifty seven times. I'll explain. I'll explain. Number two, this is getting really bad. Number two <laughs> It Ain't Me by Kaigo and Selena Gomez, 518 plays, downloaded at least three th- three weeks ago at Tops. Wait, what song? It Ain't Me <laughs> by Selena Gomez and Kaigo. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. Number one? Number one. Number one. It's a remake of Katy Perry's Dark Horse by a group called Kids Bop Kids. Kids uh, with a Z. Okay. I, all right, I'm, I'm okay. The up. number, the number, the number two had 518 plays. Yes, Adam, this one has 991 plays. <laughs> <laughs> and and how long of a time period? Okay, so this isn't like all time. All time, it would be like Tor- Tori Amos song. You like, when James did you Addiction. download number one? So this must have been okay. Well, this I rebooted my iTunes a few like I changed computers at work. Sure. So like I probably have had this on my like this is must be like the last year or two. Got it. So here's here's the deal with me. When I'm locked in at work, I will have on music, and when I hit a stride, I'll go on repeat to not break the cycle. Interesting. So that explains why something like Castle on the Hill, like I probably listened to that for a week straight on repeat. <laughs> I've heard now. I've heard you and Gareth talk about this because he'll say when he's writing, or in particular, I think when he's editing, that he will listen to the same song on repeat. I yeah. have a such a short attention span that I can only. I tried it, and I think I got through five times of a song. But that's it. And that was Give me- that was Commons. Uh, it's the intro song. I can't remember the name of the album, but the song B by Common. It's got a great build up, and uh, it's a fairly short song. And I guess about five was the size I got. Uh, the remake of, of uh, Dark Horse by Katy Perry by Kids Bop is also short. That might explain why why it got so many plays. But you, didn't, I'm pretty sure that you didn't listen. I'm pretty sh- that was, clearly was downloaded for your daughter. No, that was downloaded by me. I love that song. 
<laughs> no regrets. Adam, wait, that, that why, Kygo, that, wait, real quick. Why, real quick remix, that Kygo, why the Kids Bop remix? Why not the original? I mean, I don't understand. Do you, do you want to know for real? Yeah. Okay, number one, I, I think the vocals are better on the Kids Bop. <laughs> okay. Number two, it gets rid of that horrible rap interlude. It's bad. Uh, it's just like a bad, like, bad, she's a bitch. I call that karma. She'll eat your heart out. Mark Jeffrey Dama. Like, I don't need that, man. It just get, get that out of there. Okay. Get to brass tacks. And then I actually feel like musically it's a lot better. I think I might have downloaded it for my... for my. You know what? It might have been playing on a... It probably was playing on something I was listening to with Charlie. Yep. And then I was like, hmm, I'm going to Shazam this. And then the next thing I know, it's like 997 plays later. I'm embarrassing myself on our podcast about it. Yeah. That's a lot of that's that's a lot of times. All right, hey, so give me your top five. Um, oh, you know what? I didn't pull it up, so okay. You know what? We'll do it. We'll save that. We'll save that for some other time when we. Why don't we save that for next distraction? (laughs) All right. Well, let's do some shout outs. I'm gonna give a shout out for Kavitha Davidson, our great guest this week. I had a chance to meet Kavitha at the ESPNW Summit. We were on a panel together about. about women in media and harassment. And I thought it was, she was, she's really, really talented. It doesn't surprise me that she's such a talented musician. She's so great. I also give her so many props for continuing to play trumpet. I have a trumpet. Uh, I, I butted it out and tried to play it for my daughter and uh, put it back in the case after about five seconds. Cause I was like, this is hard. I forgot this was so hard. So Kavitha continue to play. I hope you never give it up. Adam, any shout outs? As usual, um, I want to say shout out to my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, uh, Ron Mack. Wait, is he your cousin Ron? Or well, see, I didn't necessarily say to start that Ron Mack was my cousin, but let me just close it out by saying my other cousin Ron which then lets you know that Ron Mack is my first cousin. My other cousin, Ron, has no last name. He just goes by Ron. No, it's Ron, comma, other cousin. <laughs> no, my other cousin is his first name. Ah, uh, this whole time. Who knew? And, and my other cousin is his first name. We're just circling all around, and we're going to edit zero of this. So hopefully people are still listening. Do you know who who produced most of... Um, that the Michael Jackson album "Dangerous" that we were just speaking of, like a person. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, ninety-one. Uh huh. Athlete? No, nope. <laughs> At least not in this life. Oh wait, you're talking about like the actual music producer? Yes. Uh, Phil Spector. Teddy Riley. From which musical groups? Teddy uh, Riley uh, was a member of Rex and Effects, famous for Rump Shaker, and then would oh. go on to be the lead of Blackstreet. Okay, Adam, real quick, together, ready? Do do it if you know it. Shake it, shake it, shake no, it, not shake, shake it. it. Shake it, spin every birthday, but buck naked. naked. Your body is soft, make it want to push it. up. More, shake I don't it to know the this left. One. Shake it to the right. Shake it to the I right. Mind. I don't shake mind it sticking it to it every night. single night. Come on, pass yeah. up. Um, boom, boom. A bigger baka. Shake it, baby. Shake it, baby. Shake it. Don't stop her. Let me see you do. See you do the booty hop. Now make the booty drop. Now, now hot. 
Don't make the booty stop. <laughs> guys, guys, Rex and Effect did not reunite for this podcast. It's just me and Adam. Oh, uh, and there goes our <laughs> millennial crowd. Bye. And there goes me continuing to steal that joke from Jason Menzoukas. Anyway, uh, guys, thank you for listening. In the immortal words of America's greatest rapper, Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Just shake your up. Booty. Have a ride now. <laughs>